Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Sacred Space Podcast. My name is Gina Stockton, and I am thrilled that you are here today. My guest is Ken Baugh. Ken has been a pastor for over 25 years. He started IDT Ministries in 2014 to disciple men and pastors in their walk with Jesus. He's passionate about discipleship, and he just released a book called Unhindered Abundance, Restoring Our Souls in a Fractured World. And I tell you what, our world is pretty fractured right now. Ken and I used to be on staff together at a church. He was the senior pastor, and I reached out to him to be a guest on the podcast before I even knew that he had a book coming out. His story is woven through his book, his story of being a senior pastor, the weight and pressure of all of that, him hitting a wall, really burning out, his subsequent firing from that position, and really being faced with whether or not he was going to allow Jesus to meet him in the middle of that pain, in the middle of that trauma, in the middle of his anger and hurt over everything that happened, and let Jesus bring transformation out of that, or to hold on to those things and be formed by his anger and bitterness. And it's an invitation for all of us. We all have a choice to let God, who is our Redeemer, come into those dark, hard places. And uh, there's an invitation to intimacy, invitation to be family, spiritual community. We talked about everything from his story to the role of senior pastor and whether or not that's even a a healthy biblical position. We talked about elders. We talked about all of it. And it's a really good examination of the things that we kind of take for granted and presume in life and church. And I hope that you are encouraged. Maybe you see leadership differently. Maybe you're going to have some compassion and love for the spiritual leaders in your life that we can all step into intimate relationship with God and each other and really be the spiritual family and kingdom family that we were called to be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this time in the sacred space. So Ken Ba, you're here. Finally. I'm so excited that you're here. <laughs> Ken, you and I were on staff at a church together for a long time. We worked together. Yeah. And you have a book coming out. Yes long time in the making. Yeah. What's the name of your book? It's Unhindered Abundance, Restoring Our Souls in a Fragmented World. That's probably timely right now. (laughs) Yeah. I think with everything going on in our world and culture and subculture, there's hopefully some things that will be apropos. Yeah. Yeah. You and your wife, Susan, have two daughters and three grandbabies. Yes. That's amazing. We hit the grandparent jackpot when uh, our oldest daughter had twins. That's so cool. That's been very fun. Amazing. Well, gosh, we we have a lot of history. We've, We've been through a few things together, but I would love for you, as much as you're able and are comfortable, to share your story. And I know we were just talking before we went on air that this is a lot of your stories unpacking your book and um, you go on your journey. But when I met you, you had come, you were a pastor in Washington, D.C. You mm-hmm. were leading a huge young adults church that had turned, went from a few hundred to a few thousand. And uh, you stepped in as a senior pastor at the church that I was at. I wasn't on staff at that time. But yeah, I would love to hear your journey. You can go back farther than that if you want. Let us get to know Ken Baugh. Yeah, well... <laughs> 
might get more than you bargained for on that one. <laughs> you know, I think like a lot of pastors, and maybe we could say for all pastors, your ministry comes out of your your life and the things that have shaped you for good and for bad. Yeah. And that is certainly true in my life because we can't compartmentalize things. We're, we're holistic beings in the sense that we don't live these neat, tidy compartments that everything leaks yeah. into each other. Yeah. And my ministry is no exception to that. As far back as you want to go, I've been in pastoral ministry, local church ministry for over 30 years. Yeah. And at each juncture, God worked in different ways in part because of what he was doing in me. And so a lot yeah. of the ministry outcome is what he's doing in us. And I think Absolutely. that's I think that's what provides integrity to ministry anyways. Yeah. So our time in Washington DC was coming out of a very large church in Southern California and thinking that frankly I just thought my life was over. This is a theme yeah. that comes up. <laughs> because I don't like change. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't move through the stages of orientation, disorientation, and mm-hmm. reorientation yeah. smoothly. It's very messy. Yeah. And especially in the early days, I think I'm getting better at it. Uh, at times, I think I'm better at it than I actually am. But our transition from Southern California to Washington, D.C. was, you know, kicking and screaming. Yeah. So we went there. We were there for 10 and a half years uh, at McLean Bible Church and which is a great church, and I got to work with some amazing people and the ministry that God allowed us to lead, and we actually built from the ground up. It was just a really sweet time yeah. you know, to be uh, in that place with all of those young people because Washington, D.C. is one of the meccas for young adults in our country, and that time frame was certainly true. And... The ministry that came out of that was global. It yeah. was just astounding to yeah. be a part of that. So we were there for 10 and a half years. And then the ironic thing is that coming back to California to go to the church where I was pastoring, which you uh, eventually came on staff at as well, I went kicking and screaming back. <laughs> yeah. So there's a kicking and screaming theme in my life right. that yeah. is just kind of part of it. But one of the things that I have really come to appreciate about the journey is that God is with us on the journey. Yeah, he is. Amen. And I've really come to believe, Gina, that one of the reasons God just doesn't snap his fingers and fix everything is because he wants to be something for us in the midst Mm. of the desert that he can't be for us otherwise. Absolutely. I mean, how can I know that God is my provider unless I'm ever in need? Yeah. How can I know God is my comforter? If I'm never in pain. Yeah. So at least in this life, there's aspects of God's character and nature that we can't experience outside of contrast. Yeah. And so that's been a real healing paradigm for me because it has brought perspective to hiccups that are just part of life and the messiness of both life and ministry that... When you look back on, you see God's presence in that and his faithfulness through that. Yeah. That I think bolsters us and gives us resilience as we go into whatever is next. Yeah. Not that everything is one perpetual 
wilderness wasteland experience after the other. No. But certainly, I mean, I'm 56 years old, so I've been through a couple of those. (laughs) And the great thing is that I'm not afraid to go into the next one because I've learned some things in coming through the other one. Absolutely. I don't look forward to it. Right. But I also realize that God just doesn't wave to me as I go into the desert and just say, okay, I can't, I'll see you on the other side. He's like, no, I'm going through this with you. Right. And I think that's the sweetness that comes out of the intimacy that God cultivates in our hearts as we go through really difficult times. Right. And that's the fruit of that is the reorientation, right? Yes. So there's the orientation that God, you're good. You're awesome. The birds praise you, everything. Then disorientation, my flesh is rotting off my bones. Right. But the reorientation is, yeah, but. Yeah. You're on the throne and I will praise you even in the valley of the shadow of death, right? Absolutely. And you can't you can't express that unless you've been in that place in the middle, no, you right? Can't. Yeah. You can't. And I think too, there's another benefit of this, and that is the community that God brings around you. Yeah. As you go through that. Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't he doesn't abandon us in that. Like I said, he is with us, but he also brings flesh and blood Jesus people around yeah. us to help us through that. Yeah. And those are some of the sweetest relationships that you can have. Well, and doesn't that just get back to the core of of what we're made for? You know, to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's, it's all about relationship, all yes. of it. And we've distorted it and reduced it and turned it into religion and turned it into so many things. But at the end of the day, if we can come to that place of recognizing what the prayer of John 17 was looking towards, and if we can recognize the miraculous gift of spiritual community and what it means to bear one another's burdens and the invitation that is there, both vertically and horizontally, right? It's a, It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, the relational dynamic of our faith is essential to our transformation. Yeah. Because God doesn't bring about transformation outside of relationship. Yeah. He is a relational being. He exists in a triune community. The Trinity is God's small group. And so we, part of being created in His image and likeness, that means a lot of things. But one of the things that means is that we are created as relational beings also who need relationship with Him and with each other. Yeah. God created it so that a relationship with Him is not enough, as heretical as that sounds. Right. That's yeah. His doing. Absolutely. And we see that play out in Scripture. I mean, yeah. even in James, you know, you can't say you love God and hate your brother. So yeah. there's this, this vertical, horizontal, like you said, dynamic going on constantly. Those, they're intertwined. You can't separate right. them. Yeah. And we can't separate relationship from our transformation process. But in the last 500 years or so of church history, we've really leaned more towards propositional truth as the means for our transformation than relationship. Absolutely. And it's not minimizing the importance of propositional truth in special revelation, right? In God's revelation in his word. I'm not minimizing that. But the written word is always to lead us to the living word. Yeah. And I think the relational dynamic, and with that come emotions, with that comes yeah. the messiness mm-hmm. of life. We've tried to separate that, I think, from ministry and yeah. separate it from discipleship. And I yeah. think that's been part of what has led us to the place where really we are today in North America 
uh, with a lot of brokenness, both in leadership as well as congregation. Yeah. That maybe this current pandemic is both revealing, Mm -hmm. but also is maybe we'll look back on this at some point and see has been one of God's greatest gifts to us in the last hundred years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you came back to California kicking and screaming and you step into a senior pastor position in South Orange County. So yeah, pick up your story there. That was an interesting time for me personally in regard to, because I didn't want to come back to California initially. Mm -hmm. And I was actually in conversation with the senior pastor in Virginia about succession and, you know, we were having conversations about that. There was no guarantee, but we were starting to have conversations about what that might look like, what a process might look like to uh, bring that outcome so forth. And when I brought that information home, Susan informed me that uh, <laughs> she needs to be a part of that conversation yes, and signing up for permanency, in, permanent residency in Washington, D.C. was not on her to-do list. Nice. So that led to quite a bit of conversation mm. and some hardship in our marriage because uh, I was very resistant to that. Hmm. And so as God does, he works on us and brings us to a place of recognizing change when it needs to take place. And so he brought us to Southern California, which is home for us. We both went to the same high school right here in town. And so this was not a foreign place. But living in D.C. for 10 and a half years, which is a very different culture from California, yeah, it took a while to kind of readjust to Southern California culture. Yeah, I remember you, you showed up and were wearing suits. Well, and that's for and to my for, to my defense <laughs> to my defense, I still to this day would prefer preaching in a suit than otherwise. How many? This this shows you the 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 silliness of American ministry. How many meetings were we talking about? Oh man! Now Too Ken, many. tie no tie, collar yes. no. Yeah, just yes. the silliness. Yeah, silliness. It was. But and I get we need to adapt to our environment <laughs> and you know all that, but it, it is what it is. And so, so I slowly came around to you know making some changes in my wardrobe, but uh, reluctantly, mm-hmm. I will say. Yes. Oh, I remember. <laughs> Yeah. But what, here's the irony, though, Gina, is that I came back to California and really at, the first eight months that I was at the church felt very normal. It felt like it didn't feel any different than what I was experiencing in Washington, D.C. I mean, it just there was crazy growth. There was excitement. There was all it was just fun. It yeah. really was. Yeah. And then the recession hit California and one thing after the other, I just felt like the ground underneath me was just disintegrating. Yeah. So to a large extent, my time at that church really felt like a desert experience. Yeah. And you know, the it and it ended up as leading me into even a deeper desert experience. Yeah. So you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, I figured I'd throw that out there and <laughs> see where you wanted to go with it. Yes. So, I wanna go there. Yeah. I want to go there because, you know, I think it's really important. I, I feel like, like you alluded to, you know, 2020 has been a grand disruption and disorientation in the world, obviously, but definitely in the church in America. And I would say in the last 20 plus years, 
and I'm generalizing, so I'm not, this isn't an accusation, this is just a generality, but we've become very good at placing the entirety of our spiritual maturity, well-being, and health on leaders, on institutions, on the organizations, on the personalities. And we don't allow them to have be fallible, to have a bad day, to struggle. And the collateral damage of that is so many pastors and leaders hitting walls and falling out and just all sorts of things. And so I think what's super powerful is for you, yes, you're a pastor, a leader, so many years experience, you have your doctorate, you've done your dissertation, you have all of this, you've been positionally in all these places, but you're also a man. You're also a son of God mm-hmm. who has been through a journey, and that journey has been ha- painful at times. Very. And the choices we make in those critical moments determine how far we're willing to let God into those those places. So I would love for you to share as much as you're willing to, because I think it's important for people to hear Because I think one of the greatest, even as you were talking about the importance of relationship, so, you know, the vertical and the horizontal and spiritual community and all those things. And one of the the most um, insidious tactics of the enemy is isolation, is to whenever I'm disappointed, I'm hurt, I am full of shame, I'm dealing with um, self-doubt or insecurity or fear, whatever the case may be, and the enemy just starts to pull me away, pull me away, I'm offended, I'm not going to go there anymore, I'm hurt, I'm going to protect myself over here, whatever the case may be. And before you know it, I've, I've lost that support system, that relation, those relationships that I was made for in people, and then ultimately the relationship I was made for with with Jesus, I start to hide. And then one of the most heartbreaking verses in the Bible to me is in Genesis, where God says, where are you? Mm -hmm. I would love for you to just share your journey in that, in the walls that you hit, and the things that, and and probably I would assume that you were tempted to isolate or to pull away or to run away, and how did God meet you in those places? Yeah. Well, the role of senior pastor as it exists in most churches is really fraught with a lot of problems. Because I, mean, I would go so far to say it's not even biblical. Well, <laughs> you know, there is no, yeah. yeah it's a plurality you know. of elders at best. Yeah. And then even in Paul's early uh, church planting, he didn't put elders in, pl- in, in place at each church. Yeah. So it, it's really a priesthood of believers. And I think yeah. we need to, I think we need to take a look at that. Yeah. The challenges that ensue is that, you know, everyone has their gifts and strengths and weaknesses and brokenness. And at, when you're put into a role like a senior pastor, nobody nobody wants to deal with the brokenness and the yeah. woundedness and the, the reality that you're not Superman. So the expectations whatever your gifts are. Some are gifted communicators, some are gifted administrators, some have stronger gifts in leadership, some have stronger other gifts in, you know, empathy and pastoral counseling. Yeah. Uh, and so, but as a senior pastor, the expectation, unspoken expectation, is that you do all of all those of things equally well. Yeah, you're the amazing teacher, you're an yes. amazing pastor, you're the visionary, you're strategist, yes. you manage the staff well. I mean, you are... you. The entirety of the organization lays on your, sh- your shoulders. And even 
even if you have a strong team, which we did, yeah. at the end of the day, the expectation of those that you report to, and in that situation was a board of elders, right. there's expectations there. Yeah. And the, there are metrics that mm-hmm. they use, again, often unspoken, yeah. to evaluate if you're doing a good job or not doing a good job. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that every time you stand and, you know, you've been in the spotlight plenty, Gina, so you know. But after every sermon, as you're go- as I'm going through it, I'm just I'm visualizing people putting scorecards up, you <laughs> right. know, like, like and, oh, I made that guy mad. Yeah, oh, I'm gonna hear this comment this week. Yeah, yeah and you do. Yeah, absolutely. and you can't make everybody happy. Yeah, and I don't know, you know, I, I get to mentor a lot of pastors nowadays, and I don't know one guy who ever went to seminary or where, whoever went into ministry for any other reason but to love on people and teach God's word and encourage people in the faith. And they didn't go into this to make money. They didn't go into yeah. it because they were power hungry. They wanted to dominate people. I mean, yeah, there's there's good intentions. And so you go into these situations. And even though when I went in as the senior pastor, I had, you know, 15 years of ministry experience at a very large church with a very large staff and team. You know, there were still things as a senior. I was the associate senior pastor at McLean. Right. And the senior pastor and I had an incredible friendship and relationship. Yeah. But I still didn't sit in that seat. When you sit in the seat. Yeah, the buck stops. It does. And that's everybody's expectation. Yeah. So, and here's the irony is that you're in an elders meeting and you're looking at spreadsheets. Nobody ever taught me how to read a spreadsheet. (laughs) Right. Ever. Yeah. I don't have, you don't get a class in seminary that takes no. you through an elders meeting and say, okay, here's the budget. Here's how you do a budget. Here's how you look at right. it. Here's it. Nothing. You just yeah. have, you have to pick all that stuff up on the street, basically. Yeah. And I, and I would add to, and hear me, sacred space listeners, I, I don't, this statement isn't to be an accusation or anything at all. Uh, it's just an observation that as the, church in America has grown and kind of these these larger and larger churches have come and mega churches and stuff. Most board of elders that I've experienced are chosen first for their cultural gifts. And I made up that term. Attorneys, entrepreneurs, finance guys. We have an organization and we need people who are the best of their field here. And the spiritual gifts or the spiritual qualifications of, of elders are secondary. That doesn't mean they're not people who love aren't don't love Jesus. Right. They are. I've I'm friends with a lot of guys who have been, are, or are going to be elders someday. It doesn't mean they're bad people, but oftentimes you have a group that collectively will face a decision, an emergency, or whatever, and their first knee-jerk response is how would I take care of this from my profession standpoint, not necessarily from the pastoral, right. spiritual care standpoint. Again, that's not an accusation. That's that's more just lack of experience and awareness. But that combination of a pastor being thrown in a position where all this suddenly the buck stops with them, suddenly the expectation of the entire health of the organization is on their shoulders and you have an elder board that's experienced heavily on one side, but not as much on the other side. And, and the combination of that is really responsible for a lot of hurt and a lot of 
fallout in churches. Yeah. It's just an well, unfortunate and ma- thing. And not to mention the fact that Sunday always comes. Yeah, there's so, n- there, it's relentless, right? It is. It, so you're either, <laughs> yeah. I remember years ago hearing Bill Hybel say, he said, I'm either preparing for a sermon, delivering a sermon, or recovering from a sermon. Yeah. And there's a very real dynamic of that because, yeah. you know, we were at a large church. Yeah. We had multiple services. So at the end of Sunday afternoon... I'm on the couch, exhausted, mm-hmm. yeah. because I spoke Saturday night, all day Sunday, stayed after and talked to everybody that wanted to talk. And yeah. then you go into Monday and everybody's like, okay, what are you talking about next weekend? Right? <laughs> and you're on the programming team, so you were part of the problem. <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> but, you know, so then you take Monday off, right? Mm-hmm. But you feel so terrible on Monday that you, it's not restorative. Right. So you hit the ground running on Tuesday. Yeah. And now you're already behind because everybody else has been there since Monday. And now everybody's looking to you to go, okay, well, what are we doing next weekend? And you've barely started thinking about it because you've got an elders meeting that's going to be Wednesday night. And so right. you don't even start thinking about your sermon really seriously until probably Thursday afternoon. Yeah. And so now you're already four days behind because your, your programming team needs to the direction so they can start doing because they've got rehearsals and they got to get music together and I get it right that was our dance right and so you know it's just it's just rife with opportunities for frustration tiredness weakness exposing itself and and then you have financial pressures that every church that I've ever been a part of you know there's never enough money to go around I don't care how big a church it is or how big your budget is there's always limitations yeah and you're always having to make staffing decisions. And then you have the crisis du jour, right? Yeah. If you've got a large staff. I mean, we had over 30 people on staff at one point. I mean, it's, you know, and, and in Virginia, we had 300 people on staff. So, yeah. I mean, my staff alone was 22 people just yeah. in our young adult ministry. So, you know, it's just the pressure is unbelievable. And then every time you step, you know, into a spotlight, regardless of whether it's showing up at the women's ministry because they want you to promote something or the men's ministry or Sunday morning or, you know, go down and encourage the children's workers and such. It's just all of this expectation is that you are the person that has to go breathe life into everybody. And the sad thing is most pastors don't have anybody breathing life into them. Yeah. And even if they did, in order to let that happen, they have to make themselves vulnerable. Right. And that's where it's just not safe. Yeah. So it's a it's a really challenging situation mm-hmm. at best and it's a disaster at worst. Yeah. And sadly we experienced the disaster part together. Yeah. Before you go on, I just you know, it's interesting because I would say ninety percent of people who get up and go to church on at their church that they belong to this anymore just have no grid or understanding for everything you just articulated and and then you know you look at 2020 you add to that all of these pastors from tiny churches to mega churches leading through this year of division and uncertainty and division in the church you know if you if you make me wear a mask i'm not coming on sunday if you don't make everybody wear a mask i'm not coming on sunday if you gather i'm not coming if you don't gather like the the amount of just weight that our leaders have had to stand under. And then it's also exposing right now in 2021, January 2021, all these things you're saying, don't they just sound so ridiculous? (laughs) 
you know, the importance that we've put on yeah. all of these programs and expectations and this and making an announcement at a women's study, like, give me a break, really? But those are the things that we, these idols that we've really constructed in the American church, you know, all these little things we've kind of created as utmost importance. And in the meantime, leaders are being crushed under all that weight of expectation and they're not being shored up and not being cared for, not knowing how to care for themselves because they've never been taught how to care for themselves. For sure. And now we're in this year that's unprecedented and all this crisis and how do, how do they lead? Because they're not, they're not leading out of the overflow. They're leading, they're, they were already leading in depletion and now here we are. So pretty yeah, crazy. Sadly, I would say most pastors, if they were being honest, are not leading out of their overflow. No. They don't even know what an overflow would be. No, they don't. Because they're having to constantly give out and and cannot take in yeah. what they need. Yeah. A, because that's not okay. There's just these weird un, unspoken expectations that over time, I heard one person describe it as it's, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts. Yeah. One paper cut's not going to hurt you, but a thousand, you're going to bleed out. And yeah. ministry, sadly... The reality is, behind the curtain, it's a thousand paper cuts. The hardship of ministry, part of the reason it's so hard is because how we have set it up, how we do ministry, how we do church right. today. Yeah. And hopefully COVID will give us some insight into what we can stop doing. Yeah. And maybe we can start doing some things that might have a different result as far as how many people are in the seats. Yeah but may have a greater result in how many lives are actually being transformed. Yeah, yes and amen. Going back, you were kind of got to that place where we're in the the rat race, right? The relentless cycle of week-to-week ministry. And what happened? Well, I just burned out. Yeah. And I didn't realize I was burned out. Susan saw it in me. She saw it, she saw it in me two years before I got fired. And... It, it's just, you know, you have enough energy to get to the next Sunday. Yeah. And then deliver the message, go home, lick your wounds, try to rest up as best you can. It's like going into battle over and over again. Yeah. And then it didn't help because, you know, I had an executive pastor who was a great guy, very gifted, but I'm trying to share how I'm feeling. And his response is, well, maybe you're not gifted for, to do this. And it's like, yeah. okay, how is that helpful? And how <laughs> how is that even a part of this conversation? Right. And it wasn't just him. And maybe I wasn't. And uh, frankly, as I look back on it now, I don't think I am wired to be a senior pastor. Well, I don't know that anybody is. I well, think that that's, true. you know, we're going back to, you know, I think that's the problem. And again, this isn't point of this is not to point fingers. The point of this is is more to bring an awareness. We need a wake up call in the church, and clearly we're getting one with with COVID and everything. But it has to go farther than just oh, we can't gather on Sundays like we used to, because there's things that are broken. It's it's so ironic that a place that is supposed to be a place of spiritual community and discipleship and care and relationship uh, is kind of the farthest thing from that for the people that are leading and providing the care for for everybody else. And so um, most people would not understand or have grit or realize and would probably be surprised to hear that that is probably the least safe place for anybody in ministry. 
trying to maintain something you think you're supposed to maintain, right? And that's another form of isolation. Isolation isn't just isolating from, you can be isolated in the middle of a lot of people. You can be isolated on a staff, right? Because the enemy just convinces you, you just got to keep going. You just got to keep pretending. You just got to keep. And the the, the tragedy is he's probably right. (laughs) Because as soon as you say something, that's the end of it. Well, and that's what happened. That's what happened. You yeah. were in the you were in the, room in the room. Yeah. When when I when I told you guys, yeah, we were trying to plan a new series, and I'd basically had a panic attack the night before, which I'd never had before because I couldn't come up with anything. Yeah. I was so completely depleted and exhausted. I had no creativity. Now I understand what was going on, both in hindsight and just in further training. I understand how the brain works now. I understand the the dynamics that were going on and so forth. But I was just done. And I'm sitting in the room and looking at you guys, and that was the beginning of the end. Yeah. And sadly, it resulted in a termination. Yeah. Because, you know, the leadership in place, and this is this is how I saw it, the way they were going to go about telling the congregation that I was done, I didn't feel was genuine. I wasn't in agreement with what they were doing. I wanted to identify the problems. Yeah. And then let's put a plan together. And if I can't turn it around, whatever the agreed upon issues are that we need to resolve, then I resign and move on. Yeah. That was never the deal. Yeah. It was already so broken in their opinion that, well, we can't we can't put that in place. And it's like, right. how is it possible that the first time I'm hearing that there's a problem is it's too late? Yeah. How does that work? Yeah. As a senior leader, it doesn't. I don't care whether it's the church or whether it's the business world. You're in that position, and just because of the position, people don't tell you the truth. Yeah. People tell you what you want to hear. Most good leaders are not looking to have a bunch of yes people around them. They, right. You know, if there's a problem, tell me there's a problem, and then yeah. let's hopefully work on it together. Yeah. And you would think in the in the church we would be the place that would extend the most grace have the most right. compassion be the most long suffering and and yet when you don't experience that and yeah you're in a position of especially of senior leadership yeah and you're struggling with something whether it's emotional or physical or whatever it is yeah if you're burned out well maybe this is too much for you why don't we look at the problems here instead of just the symptoms yeah well and i think too it's like even part of your thing like well let's identify the problem and come up with the plan which they weren't willing to do at that point but even that is still organizational problem solving true and there was not <clears throat> anybody looking at you going how do we care for ken it didn't seem that way. Well, and I, I would like to think that there were some of the elders that were doing that. I think there were, but the train again, the train kind of had already left the building, and I think that goes back to well, it left without me because I didn't yeah. know it had left the building right. <laughs> until until I'm the only one standing going in the like, train station. Hello, going, with uh, your bag. Um, <laughs> can I? But you know, there's that, and this I've I've said for years. There isn't really training to be an elder to steward spiritually and care for spiritually the leaders and and there really isn't a training for that like no, how do you care no, for that there is there is training in doctrine and theology in doctrine and theology but yes. there is not training there's not even a paradigm gene in yeah. most churches yeah. for soul care no that that's a very very new term it is that still a lot of 
uh, churches and elder boards don't embrace. You know, like I said, I coach a lot of pastors, and in one particular situation, I remember talking to one of the senior leaders of some of these pastors, and it was like, well, pastors should take care of themselves. Yeah. And the assumption is that they are. Yeah. Well, they don't know how. Yeah. We weren't taught that in seminary. We weren't yeah. taught how to do self-care. That that seems like selfish humanism stuff. Yeah. And so you've got all this woundedness and brokenness that you bring into. It's like marriage, right? Marriage is not the people that have marriage problems. It's not the marriage that's the problem. It's all the baggage they brought into the marriage. Right. And so you've got two people, you've got two sets of bags, and now you've got all these dynamics that are going on. Well, that's true in any situation. That's why relationships are messy. That's why we need so much grace. That's why, you know, love covers a multitude of sins, right? I mean, there's all kinds of dynamics here that we can talk about in regard to how our communities are are to function and be biblical, and yet how they tend to function. Yeah. And it's not that anyone's sitting there going, we, we don't want to be biblical in this. And nobody's... No. Well, no, that that's the thing. No, nobody's being malicious. No, no one's intending to destroy anybody's life or to hurt anybody. No. The farthest thing from the truth. But those patterns that we fall into and the presumptions that we make end up doing that. So instead of leaving the 99 and going after the one, elders and senior leadership tend to go, oh, we need to protect the 99. Correct. So let's just let the one go because oh, yes. there's a lot at stake here. Right. Right. And it's ironic that we neglect to look at Jesus' model of leadership. I mean, look at even with his disciples. You know, he prepared his guys to even hit a wall and fail and fall. He told Peter, you're going to deny me. Mm -hmm. And he didn't let him go off. He brought him back in. Go tell my disciples and Peter. (laughs) So there's this grace and room for failure, for stumbling, for not getting it right, for doubting, for whatever the issue may be, and grace and intentionality, pursuit and love to bring back in. Unfortunately, that's just, that's missing most of the time. Well, and I think Jesus clearly was not interested in numbers. Yeah, right. (laughs) Because he did not pursue the crowds. Yeah. He would respond to the crowds and he had compassion on the crowds. Over and over again, we see that. But... We've kind of flipped that around for some mm-hmm. reason. And it may be, going back to what you said earlier, is that a lot of the the men who sit in positions of elder are business people that bring with them their training and expertise. And a lot of these people are very gifted at that. Yeah. And my experience has been that there's this switch that gets flipped that as an elder, now it's my job to protect the church. Yeah. And I think that is the switch that once that once you think that's your job, I think God is plenty able to protect his church. Yeah. Our job is not to protect the church. Our job is to be good stewards with what God has given us yeah. and to care for each other and to create a community of love and grace and acceptance. And I'm not saying we don't deal with problems when they arise. And if there's challenges, leadership or otherwise, we, we don't address those. We sw- I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying we do that in a communal way. Right. That's like a family. Yeah. Family is messy. Yeah, it is. And church as family is messy. Yeah. You walked through some pretty, you know, this this whole situation was really hard. It was very hurtful to you and, and your wife and it was hurtful to the church. It was just, you know, it was messy. It was hard. Well, and to my girls, too. Really yes, absolutely. Girls. But God is a redeemer and... He does work things together for our good and his glory. It's not just a bumper sticker or a nice little Hobby Lobby thing that you hang on your wall, but it's a 
brutal sometimes path to that redemption. Yeah. And we have choices how we respond in the darkest times. And I, you know, I said this before, you very easily could have just cut your losses and bolted and moved somewhere, you know, far away, taken another job at a church and just pretended that never happened. Yeah. But you didn't. And you stayed and faced the ugly and the dark, uh, you and Susan both, and um, allowed the Lord to meet you there. I would love for you to just talk a little bit about that choice to deal with all of this. Because you could have very easily just gotten so hurt and offended and bitter and placed blame. Oh, it I been was. Very, oh, yeah. no, I was. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, you could still be there yes. and build a whole ministry on the mound of your crap. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, so, and sadly, I think that's what... And a lot of people... That's what a lot, a lot of times happen. I don't know if you remember, Gina, but the series that I did right before I was terminated was... A, we did an eight-part series on forgiveness. <laughs> that's right. Remember? Because yes. I interviewed you on stage. <laughs> that's right. During one of those those talks. Yeah. And there were a number of reasons why we stayed. There was a really large, successful church that reached out to me and said, we would like to interview you, you know, to, be, to become a senior pastor. And I did enter into that initially. Then it got to the place where it looked like it was going to happen. And I remember being really conflicted about it because I did not feel, honestly, there was a part of me that felt like I was going right back into what I had just gotten out of. Mm-hmm. And I was concerned about that. And I remember praying and asking the Lord, I said, Lord, I don't trust myself in this decision. So if this isn't right, take it off the table. And it was a week later, the chairman of the search committee called me and said, you know, can we decide to go a different direction? Hmm. And I was, I was stunned because that is not the direction this was going. But I remembered what I had asked the Lord. And I really think the Lord took it off the table. Yeah. And I hadn't worked through some of the things that right. he wanted me to work through. Now, yeah. I feel like I'm still working on those things. So it's yeah. not that I've arrived in any Absolutely. ways. But I think there's been growth and progress. But the pain that I was in was exacerbated by what I thought had been resolved pain that goes way back into my childhood. Yeah. That really came out as I was writing my book and just mm-hmm. understanding and the clarity that comes out of my dissertation and just all the other work that I was doing. And I was doing double sessions in therapy for a year mm-hmm. every week Yeah, with a very skilled psychologist Yeah, that had a huge impact. And it, it probably had less of an impact in the moment. It was the after effects of that. Yeah. Honestly, without that, I would still, I think, be stuck. Yeah. One of the reasons that, another reason we didn't go someplace else is because I had just done that series on forgiveness and knew that I had to work through this bitterness. Yeah. Because if I didn't, it would, it would consume me yeah. and destroy me. I was, I was that angry. Yeah. And, and felt like it was unjust that, you know, I went into the victim thing. I went into all that stuff. Now, it wasn't that I wasn't taking any personal responsibility for what had happened because I, I did. But I definitely place the lion's share of the blame on everybody else. Yeah. And as I look back on that, what I would define, I would say is a defining moment in my life that I think was really a crossroads. It's like, okay, Ken, you have a ton of years of experience in ministry, tons of years of being a teaching pastor, being in the Word, 
constantly. I mean, it's just, you know, mm-hmm. how has that really shaped you? How has yeah. that really affected you? So for me, there was a point of really integrity in this. It's like, wow, am I going to really kind of put my money where my mouth is? Yeah. And it took a while for me to get to that place because I was so angry. It's, so, it's amazing how much you can justify something when you're angry. Yeah. And as the anger started subsiding, as I continued to work through stuff, then I was able to be more objective and, and just with some help from some other people, see things differently. Yeah. That's so powerful. And, I, you know, I, I hope that people listening recognize that this isn't, this isn't just about somebody who's in ministry. <laughs> we all come to those moments yeah. in our life where we're dealing with pain, trauma, disappointment, the choice whether or not to forgive, the choice whether or not to face those things, the choice whether or not to let that offense and hurt form us or to do that hard work so that we allow God's grace to form us in the midst of that. that And we don't want it to malform us. Right. It definitely forms forms us. Yes. But that's the redemptive beauty of it. Right. Is that in God's hands something painful can be used to form us more into the image of Christ. Right. The book is entitled Unhindered Abundance because I believe that the abundance that we're talking about is a quality of life that is largely characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. And as I am becoming more and more like Jesus, the evidence of that is my character is being changed into the kind of person that responds to a situation with those attributes. Yeah. And that doesn't happen overnight. It's no. not a result of willpower. Yeah. It's it's the byproduct of an inner work of the spirit that requires my participation. Yeah. Because God just doesn't zap us right. with instant character. I think it's easy for us as believers to want that. I mean, we want we want the easy way out. We want to we do. want God to be the genie in the bottle, and I want to rub the lamp and go, yeah. okay, heal me. <laughs> but more often than not, we have a choice to engage in the process. And you hit the nail on the head just now that we don't respond out of willpower. Out of I'm a Christian, therefore I need to do A, B, and C. Right. So I need to respond this way. I'm going to hit the end of myself every time. I mean, I, I might be able to go pretty far with that. And if I'm really good, I can fool myself and everybody else for a period of time. But at some point, I'm going to run into the end of myself and have to let go and surrender. The malformation is is really when we let those things build strongholds. (laughs) Maybe we build thinking that they're some sort of protection, but in fact, they're the very thing that are going to stand in the way of that freedom that, that we're hoping for, that we're longing for. Yeah, and I'm not sure, Gina, that the kind of character formation we're talking about here can happen outside of the crucible of life. Yeah. And again, God is with us in that, and yeah. He is bringing those changes about, but He does that in partnership with us. Yeah. There's a fundamental expectation in the New Testament that we, as believers, are being transformed into the image of Christ. The question is, how does that happen? Yeah. What is my part in that, if any? And what is God's part in that? Yeah. 
if you go too far talking about what my part is, then people are accusing you of legalism and a works-oriented righteousness and mm-hmm. so forth. Uh, if you don't, then it's this kind of passive, well, I'm just going to sit here and wait for God to zap me with right. instant Christ-like character. Yeah. And so there's a middle ground where Dallas Willard talks about the whole aspect of training. And so mm-hmm. there is a training dynamic that requires our participation. Yeah. And so in my book, I go through what that looks like and what are the specifics and the practical outcomes of all of that. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I'm like the primary guinea pig through this whole thing. <laughs> of course. Whereas God is working this out, not only in my thinking and, and how I understand this both biblically and theologically and and otherwise, but uh, in my own practice and in my own personal life, in my marriage, in my parenting, and all of those things, and mm-hmm. how all of those things work together. And... It's hard to do that. It's hard to get at that when you are standing in front of thousands of people preaching a sermon. Yeah. And so I'm not saying that the public preaching and teaching of the word doesn't produce an, uh, a transformative outcome. It does. But Jesus invited the disciples to come be with him. Yeah. Not show up at the synagogue at 9 a.m. for their next Hebrew lesson. Yeah. Yes and so, amen. So there is a life together that when you when you study the brain you realize that character formation is not a left brain activity so the left brain is focused on information data facts and figures and so forth it's on the right side of the brain whereas everything gets processed first in the right side and then to the left and it happens quickly but that's the relational side there's other components that are going on and so in a very real sense our character is formed by those that we are bonded to in relationship. And so there's this aspect of more is actually caught than taught. Yeah. So Jesus invites the disciples to come follow me, come be with me, come really do life with me. Yeah. And then he teaches them what it means to be one of his people. Yeah. So to be one of my people, Jesus says, my people love their enemies. Yeah. So I'm going to teach you that, and then I'm going to model it for you, and then I'm going to give you opportunity to do it and kind of instruct that and guide that along the way. And we're going to do that over a period of time so that your default when you are confronted by an enemy is not to lash out, but is to respond in love. Because, not because you're able to exert this Herculean effort in the moment to do that, but it's because you've become the kind of person that loves their enemy. Yeah, it's good. And in order to become that person requires gobs of time and relationship. Right. It doesn't just happen as a result of a really good series taught by a really gifted yeah, preacher. With really cool graphics. And, and great music. <laughs> right. It's so true. It's so much of church as we know it today is really just a cultural thing that's been built over years that you know the few thousand or a few hundred people gathering in one place and then there's a little bit of music and then someone stands up for the all-important sermon for 45 minutes and then take an offering and have donuts on the patio you know that's none of that is biblical i'm not saying it's heresy but it's those are cultural things that we've constructed and that's as hard as this year has been in a lot of ways it's one of the things that i'm the most excited about is that all of that's been removed mm. and we would be missing something very profound if 
you know, six months from now, everything's fine. And we just try to go back to business as usual. And we don't recognize the gift of the deconstruction and the disruption and do that very thing and actually go into the secret place with the Lord and go, okay, what, what do you see? (laughs) What is your vision for the church? Big C moving forward in this day and age? What does it look like to be in community and relationship with you and each other? Because there is something about that that whole format now that just, for at least this is just me personally, that feels like uh, old wineskins. Hmm. It just feels like, yeah, yeah I don't, I, I think we're done with that. I think it's time. And what does it mean for families and men and women and singles and young adults and people who are retired to start living their personal intimacy with God and stewarding that and then bringing that into community. Yeah. When our ministry comes out of our intimacy with Jesus and we're actually ministering out of the fullness and not out of the vacuum. Yeah. uh, We, I think we experience a deeper outcome. Yeah. And there's my dog chiming in. It just brings flavor to the whole thing. Doesn't it? It's just, it's real. Yes, Lord. (laughs) Yes, Jesus. (laughs) Well, Ken, this is awesome. And I'm, I'm thankful for you and I'm proud of you. Well, thank you. For um, walking it out. And um, I'm excited for what God's going to do in and through you, through this book and the things in front of you and, well, I am only where I am today because I have the love of an amazing woman who is patient and kind and pursues Christ with a passion that uh, I've seen in very few people. And a family who has just been there for me and a community of friends who've come around us that are still with us today Yeah, that in very practical ways and in just ways of just being supportive and loving and kind have really enabled us to heal. I really hope that both my ministry today in coaching and doing discipleship coaching and and mentoring pastors and through whatever God ends up doing with this book is that it becomes part of the, the process and a tool, if you will, to help us as the body of Christ uh, not only grow to become more like Christ, but also create culture around that where we can help facilitate that in each other's lives. Yeah, it's good. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ken, and I hope you get his book, Unhindered Abundance. There's a link in the episode notes, or you can go buy it on Amazon or wherever you buy your books, but it is a deep dive. It goes into the theology, the psychology, uh, into relational, emotional, spiritual health and wholeness, so that we can live in healthy relationship with God, ourselves, and other people, and that's what we're all about. So, uh, go check it out. And if you want to know more about Ken and his ministry, you can visit them at idtministries.com. That's idtministries.com. And hey, you are the best 
advertising that we have. If you enjoy this episode and you feel like you know someone who needs to hear it, share it with them, send it to a friend, post it on your social media. That's how the word gets spread. And if you haven't, would you please take the time to rate and review us on iTunes, on uh, wherever you listen to your podcast? That just helps get the word out as well. And if you want to donate to help support the production of this podcast and other projects by Stockton Ministries, you can go to the link in the episode notes and click the donate button, or you can go to our new website, StocktonMinistries.com and click the donate button in the top right hand corner to give a tax deductible donation. I hope that you know that you are seen, that you are known, and that you are loved by the creator of the heavens and the earth. And I hope that you have an amazing week in Jesus. We'll see you next time in the sacred space.